Welcome to the Davos in the Desert podcast series. My name is Mark Oliver and I am the producer of the Davos in the Desert podcast series. Our podcasts feature thought leaders in business and public policy. Our sessions are meant to be informative and thought-provoking. The topic of this session is the role of hospitals in COVID deaths, and our guest is Ralph Larigo. Mr. Larigo is the founding member of the law office of Ralph C. Larigo, which is based near Buffalo, New York. Over nearly four decades, Mr. Larigo's law firm has assisted clients with legal matters ranging from buying homes, estate planning, civil disputes, personal injury, criminal matters and divorce. Without further ado, here is David Wanatik, the CEO of Davos in the Desert and the host of our podcast series. Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, Davos in the Desert. My name is David Wanatik. I'm the CEO of Davos in the Desert. Today, we have a session on the role of hospitals in COVID deaths. Uh, speaking on this subject, very pleased to introduce our guest, Mr. Ralph Lorigo. Mr. Lorigo is the founding member of the law firm of the law office of Ralph C. Lorigo, which is based near Buffalo, New York. Over nearly four decades, Mr. Lurigo's law firm has assisted clients with legal matters ranging from buying homes, estate planning, civil disputes, personal injury, criminal matters, and divorce. Uh, so, Ralph, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. So, um, I know you've had almost five decades of experience practicing law um, in a diverse array of uh, industries and issues, uh, but we're most interested in the recent work you did a couple years ago um, in terms of um, helping clients achieve uh, justice from uh, mistreatment in hospitals. Um, it, it seems to me that uh, we had a crazy situation at the outbreak of COVID. If, if somebody uh, was asymptomatic 20 miles away, we were supposed to shelter in place. But when somebody actually was suffering from COVID and went to a hospital, in many cases, it didn't seem like the hospital was willing to treat them um, or treat them uh, effectively with uh, medicine that was available, improving, and inexpensive. That's certainly true. Um, the way I got involved <clears throat> was January of 2021. So a good client of mine, his 80-year-old mother-in-law was taken to a local hospital with COVID, placed on a ventilator in ICU, and the family was told she had a 20% chance of living. Family couldn't go visit her at that point in time. She was all alone. The son lived in Georgia. He did all this research, and he had listened to Dr. Pierre Corey's address to the U.S. Senate in December of 19. He was convinced that this drug, ivermectin, would help his mother. He went to the hospital, and he did convince the ICU doctor to give her one dose of ivermectin. One dose of ivermectin, this 80-year-old lady was able to get off the ventilator, out of ICU, and onto the COVID floor. She's onto the COVID floor. She starts to decline and they refused to give her any more of the drug. He finally contacts me. I bring a lawsuit against the hospital. Um, I do an order to show cause. We do this immediately. They come on a Thursday afternoon at 4.30. We prepare the papers that night till 11.30 at night. We uh, electronically file those papers the next morning. The judge calls me at noon, asks me about the situation. I explain to him. He signs the order. We then serve the order. Now we hear from the hospital's attorney who strongly objects. 
he wants a hearing. And so back then, no one's going to court. And so the hearings are all electronic. At that point, it was done by phone. The judge set up a five o'clock conference call for me and the attorney for the hospital. The attorney for the hospital is a high-powered lawyer, one of the biggest firms here in Western New York. And he's arguing with the judge. In the end, though, I win. So she has to be given ivermectin. That night, she's given ivermectin. Six days later, that woman is able to leave the hospital. She's alive today, and she attributes that to the fact that we were successful in that case. That was reported in the local newspaper. And from there, I got the second call, a Rochester hospital nearby city. And now we have a 67 year, excuse me, 65 year old woman um, who is again on a ventilator for 12 days. Again, the family's told she's not going to survive. I sue that hospital, I win. They give her the ivermectin, she does survive. Now the floodgates open up and I'm starting to get calls uh, from all over. In so entry, in those initial cases, did the doctors wish to prescribe Invermectin no. and they were vetoed by the administrator? Or? So in the initial situations, um, Ivermectin was not the standard of care, never became the standard of care, and they refused. This is the FDA, the CDC, the WHO, the NIH, the power that Big Pharma has over those agencies. In in my opinion, from the great deal of experience I had, this was about two major things. First of all, ivermectin was generic. So no one was making any money. You could buy ivermectin. At that point in time, the family for the second uh, uh, woman could buy ivermectin for 83 cents a pill. So no one was making money. The second thing was the vaccine was trying, they were trying to approve the vaccine on an emergency basis. By law, you can't approve a medication on an emergency basis if there's a reasonable alternative. They did not want ivermectin to be that reasonable alternative. That was the major push from the big pharmaceutical agencies. You have to understand that they made hundreds of billions of dollars from the vaccine. They knew what was ahead of them. It was a worldwide market, and they weren't going to let anything stand in the way. And that was the major push against ivermectin. So they you know, refused. Let, let's just back up on ivermectin. So um, my facts may be a little cloudy, but you know I believe that ivermectin has been administered for about 50 years. The researchers behind ivermectin, I believe, won a Nobel Prize. Um, this uh, ivermectin has been used even for pregnant women. I believe that for many years when Americans would travel to a developing country, they, it was recommended that they take ivermectin for that. It's been used in many, many cases um, with almost no adverse effects reported. Um, the situation with ivermectin is this. It's been used for 35 years. And you're right, the developer of ivermectin won a Nobel Prize for its efficacy. Now, ivermectin originally, they were using ivermectin medication for animals. It's an anti-parasitic drug. 35 years ago, it started being used for, um, for human beings. And it's been used over 3 billion times wow. in those 35 years. If you look on the WHO, 
you can see the adverse effects of any drug. In the last 30 years, ivermectin's not killed anybody. It is a safer drug than aspirin. And yet, it was refused by most every hospital in this country because of the political and the financial reasons that I mentioned. So um, before COVID, many, many doctors must have been prescribing ivermectin off-label off to get that number of users, to get 3 billion users. Um, so when COVID came, um, was it a preemptive strike by the CDC and the World Health Organization to scare doctors away from prescribing ivermectin? Or like the cases you had, uh, it seems to be that um, it was not the case the doctor wanted to prescribe it. It's It seems like they were already told not to prescribe it. Well, in the 3 billion uses, for the most part, those uses were antiparasitic uses over the decades. Then ivermectin was discovered to have antiviral and anti-inflammatory um, properties. And so it had been used um, against viruses in the last several years before COVID ever started. And when you prescribe an off-label drug, 40% of medication that's prescribed is actually 20 to 40% is actually off-label. And so this would have simply been an off-label prescription. Dr. Corey and the Frontline COVID Alliance doctors had championed ivermectin. They had studied repurposing existing drugs to try to prevent the spread of COVID. They first came across hydroxychloroquine. They found it had uh, good properties, but in their research, they found that ivermectin was better. And so they focused on ivermectin. And a number of doctors did prescribe ivermectin. In fact, I got involved with three main groups. So I got involved with the Frontline COVID Alliance, Dr. Pierre Corey. He's my hero in this thing. He's, he's done so much to promote this. If people would have listened to Corey more, we would have saved hundreds of thousands of lives in this country. I got involved with Simone Gold out of California. She actually came to my office from California to meet me. I also got involved with the International COVID Summit, which originates out of Rome, Italy, and we'd meet every week on the Zoom meeting like this. There would be 25 doctors from around the globe, including Robert Malone, that invented the sRNA methodology of the vaccine. And those 25 doctors would tell you they have not lost one patient because they prescribed either hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin immediately upon uh, someone uh, coming down with COVID. So there had been a history even an initial history of using these medications in different countries around the world to benefit patients. And yet in this country, the most advanced country, supposedly with the best system, because of the power of the big pharmaceutical companies, it was not going to be used. They were pushing it back. So, um, it seems very counterintuitive. There's this um, effort to sideline uh, drugs that work, HCQ uh, and uh, Invermectin, um, in order to get emergency approval of a vaccine that was unknown. Um, you know, maybe best efforts were used to get the best vaccine possible, but still, 
Um, there wasn't enough time to do thorough testing. Some groups, I don't believe, were tested very much or at all. I think pregnant women were not very much tested, and uh, organ transplant receivers uh, were not tested with the vaccine. So um, I just don't understand the logic of um, not using what's available that is effective in hopes of um, getting a vaccine that one can hope it would be effective. But you know, when we had SARS, it took 10 years to do the research to get a vaccine for SARS, and I'm not sure how good that was. Um, so what is really behind all this? Money. Money. Again, this was a worldwide situation, and five pharmaceutical companies made hundreds of billions of dollars as a result of that vaccine. That vaccine, which, as you said, was pushed through on an extreme timetable, was pushed through. There is a whistleblower from Pfizer who was their quality control individual in charge of quality control. He was never let into the vaccine um, information. He finally resigned from Pfizer because of it and testified for the fact that they kept him out the quality control person, they kept him out of the research for the vaccine. That was the hurry to get this vaccine on the market for a lot of reasons, but the economics certainly drove the ship. You know, um, you know, maybe the underlying reason is even more mendacious than the profit motive. I have read, not, not directly, but in uh, different articles, that the World Health Organization has as its policy the reduction of the worldwide population by 15% or 750 million people. Um, that's what I understand. Um, you know, I was a believer, as most individuals in this country, I was a believer that doctors would do everything they possibly could to save your life, that that was their... Hippocratic oath, that was what they were bound to. But what I learned in the course of representing 200 families over the course of this situation and suing in hospitals in 40 different states, what I learned was that all of that gets trumped by the bottom line. So it's the hospital administrators that set the policy of the hospital. And the doctors are forced to follow through with it because they have to practice in those hospitals. And so it's that kind of pressure that pushed down the situation of an alternative. My typical case was remdesivir became the protocol. So remdesivir was another drug pushed through by Gilead. It was pushed through on an emergency basis. When it first came out, the WHO was against remdesivir, but they had the strength to push it as an emergency on an emergency basis to get approved, and it became the protocol. Remdesivir, uh, steroids, and antibiotics. So if you went to the hospital with COVID, that's what you got. Remdesivir was $3,000 a shot, $3,000 for each vaccine. And the government paid a 20% bonus to hospitals that use this drug, remdesivir. If you go back to that WHO and you look at the adverse effects of remdesivir, in the course of 18 months, remdesivir had 7,890 adverse effects, 560 deaths, 945 cardiac events, 
743 renal failures. Yet it was the protocol where ivermectin killed nobody in 30 years, in 30 years. And so my typical client, the loved one was in the hospital 10 or 12 days already on a ventilator, was already given remdesivir and it didn't work. They had no other protocol. It was done. And yet they refused to give a drug safer than aspirin. And so it, in the beginning of all this, I won the great many cases. Um, from January right up through August, September, I was winning probably 80, 85% of the cases because the argument made sense to the court. You know, you've tried what you think is the protocol. It did not work. The people want this drug, which has not hurt anybody. And so it made sense to most judges. And I won those cases. Then the FDA came out with, you're not a horse, you're not a cow, don't take ivermectin. They pushed down because they saw we were being successful and they doubled down. Now hospitals were pushing even further. I was up against ICU doctors all the time. So um, just, just about the economics of this, um, I, we, we ran a podcast with Robert Malone and I, I believe he said that uh, when COVID first broke out, um, the government told hospitals, you can't do any elective procedures. Um, and then a hospital can't, you know, hospital loses a lot of money if you can't do elective procedures. So right. you're almost 100%, you know, uh, dependent on COVID treatment. And, and then they, they said, uh, you know, you get a bonus, as you mentioned, if you prescribe remdesivir, which is banned, is not prescribed in about 50 countries, right. I understand. And, and then I'm not sure about ventilators. I'm not sure if there was a push. dollars when you went on a ventilator. Okay, so the hospital makes more money to get on a ventilator. More money to put you on that ventilator, which arguably the ventilator will save your life initially, but it's killing you every day you're on that ventilator. There's no, there's, there's no dispute that every day you're on that ventilator hurts you. So while it may save you initially, hopefully something is being done to get you off that ventilator right away. When that doesn't happen, you're being damaged and damaged substantially. So um, we'll get to your cases in a minute, but do you think that some of the um, drivers behind these crazy policies were to embarrass Trump, you know, to um, let as many people die as possible, or at least report the number, a very high number of people dying because of COVID? Um, you know, there's a whole other discussion we can have about how uh, trumped up those numbers were. Um, you know, it was if you had a comorbidity, you had five co comorbidities, cancer, stroke, all kinds of things, diabetes, you know, you, know, you get hit by a truck. I think George Floyd uh, was a COVID case, um, you know, because I think he had COVID as well. Um, and then uh, I'm reading Naomi Wolf's book, and, and she said that um, she believes in some cases, activists, political activists were subcontracted um, by the CDC and other organizations to collect and report and massage uh, the statistics about deaths. Um, there were a lot of situations. First of all, like you mentioned, there's no elective procedures being done. Hospitals are not making the money they make of elective procedures. And so reporting deaths as COVID deaths, they got extra money for a COVID death. So it, it, there's a lot of things that went into it. And that is one of the pieces. Again, money. The 
the fact that um, Trump used hydroxychloroquine and everybody was all the media criticized Trump, that put another negative turn on alternatives like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. Um, so all these things came together. But again, in my view, being intensely involved for a year, um, money was still the big motivating factor. Big Pharma had the had the political power. You have to understand that Big Pharma, the the people who run the FDA, the CDC, the WHO, they all come from Big Pharma. That's where they come from. And Big Pharma is the largest donor to both sides of the aisle, both sides of the aisle. They're the largest donor. That's how it comes about. It's terribly unfortunate. It's not something I certainly thought about in my years before this, but it's certainly reality. So were, were the crux of your litigations, um, you know, simply around Invermectin, allowing doctors to prescribe it? Was, was that the, the main complaint? Yeah. In my situation, there were, I was getting, as we moved along from January into the later part of the year, in September, for example, I was getting 50 calls a day about this. So families were contacting me because I was in the newspaper. If you Googled my name and that word ivermectin, you'll see me in all different states in, in many, many, many articles. And I had many successes. For example, in Rochester, I sued the Rochester Hospital six different times. The first three early on, I won all six, by the way. All, the courts awarded me the, the hospital obligated to provide the ivermectin all six times. The first three, the hospitals actually provided the ivermectin, all three people live. The next three, the hospital lawyers delay. They go to the appellate division. They seek a stay. They seek delays. Even though I continue to win in court, the delays killed those people. The last three people died. So six times, six wins, three get ivermectin and live. They're alive today. Three don't get the ivermectin and they die. That's what happened. So, um, yeah, maybe you can talk a little bit about the ex to the, the extent to which the hospitals um, fought your your litigations against them. They, so you mentioned they hired some of the best law firms, very mm -hmm. expensive law firms. Yeah. Uh, they had all kinds of delaying tactics, trying to get stays and so forth. And then in our earlier conversation, you mentioned that in some cases the hospitals would appeal the case even after the patient died, just so there wouldn't be precedent. Even after the patient lived, even after I was successful and the patient lived. So there's a case in Illinois. Um, a man from Hong Kong comes to visit his granddaughter, one-year-old birthday for the first time, never saw her before. He gets COVID. He goes to the hospital. And I. they won't give him the ivermectin. The family asks for it. They won't give it. And I sue, I win, and he gets the ivermectin. He lives. The hospital still appealed the case. Now, the case is what we would legally say is moot. It's over with. There's no more action to be taken. But they did not want the precedent. So they continue to do those appeals. In Illinois, I won six different times. And another lawyer took my papers never called me, took my papers and tried a case on his own. He lost the case. 
He took that case to the appellate division and he lost at the appellate division. That set a precedent that prevented me from going back to that Illinois district to help anybody else. So judges were intimidated. It was constantly said to the lawyers for the hospital, constantly said to these judges, you wear black robes, not white coats. You can't make medical decisions. And many judges were intimidated by that as if the hospitals were God, as if they were the last word. And I would argue, if not you judge, who? Someone has to make the decision. I'm coming to you with a doctor prescribing the ivermectin. You are making a decision between my doctor, which prescribes the ivermectin, and the hospital doctors, which say no. And you need to make the decision. But a lot of judges were intimidated. What kind of uh, repercussions did you see some doctors suffering, you know, doctors that wanted to prescribe ivermectin? Did they lose hospital privileges or debarment? Or uh... In the six cases I had at Rochester General, I had a board certified nurse practitioner that helped me with those cases. So she's board certified, which means she has a great deal of education. She can prescribe medication without a, another doctor. Um, and she followed these patients, every single one of them. She followed on the patient portal every day and <clears throat> was that involved. The hospital blew her into the state. I had a, they challenged her license. The state called her in for a hearing on her license because of it. And I represented her. Now she had a notebook on every single patient. So we were successful, but many doctors, Paul Merrick, one of the, one of the very great doctors, was challenged by his own hospital and told, you can't even tell people about ivermectin. You can't even let them know it. And he brought a lawsuit and he was not successful. The hospital prevented the doctor from informing his own patient what he thought was best for the patient. And you look around our country and that happened repeatedly. Doctors were intimidated. Drugstores were intimidated. You couldn't buy ivermectin anymore at the drugstores. They were intimidated. There was a, in New York state where I am, this blue state that I live in, the attorney general wrote a letter to every doctor on the um, Frontline COVID Alliance, every New York state doctor, threatening to go after that doctor for prescribing ivermectin, an intimidation letter, which works in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. Um, the it's a very big issue when a doctor is threatened with loss of hospital privileges or loss of licensure. Exactly. And they have a half a million dollars in education uh, built in. That's, you know, their practice that they built up over 10, 20, 30 years. And uh, yeah, um, that's, that's a serious uh, threat. Even the whiff of that, uh, a lot of self-censorship too. I had doctors stopping, leaving, the, you know, stopping uh, prescribing it because of that intimidation letter. And, and you know, as you mentioned, even some of the doctors that did prescribe ivermectin, the, the drugstores didn't fill those orders. That's correct. You couldn't get it. There was a, a time frame when you, you know, ivermectin, the prescriptions were growing like crazy. There were, I forget the number, 84,000 prescriptions a week or something. Um, and then the FDA came out in that September and they doubled down. And now... Everybody, the, the drugstores were intimidated. They wouldn't do it. 
If a doctor put down it was for COVID, they wouldn't fill the prescription. It's crazy. If you look at one of the things in my arsenal when I fought these hospitals was there was a report from the attorney general in the state of Nebraska. So the attorney general in the state of Nebraska was asked whether or not he could prosecute doctors for prescribing ivermectin. And he wrote a 30 or 35 page report on ivermectin and on this whole issue. And what he concluded was that the FDA was putting out misinformation. He concluded that ivermectin was no different than an off-label drug allowed by the US Supreme Court and even encouraged by the FDA in other situations. He uh, opined that there was no way that he could punish any doctor for prescribing ivermectin. So I would use that report as here's a disinterested attorney general of a state who's laying out the fact that there's misinformation out there and that ivermectin is a safe drug and has antiviral, anti-inflammatory uh, aspects. One of the other crazy things that happened to me was, again, in my research, many states have what we call right to try acts. So the right to try acts came about mostly from cancer years ago. So I would go in front of a court in Virginia, for example, I went in front of a judge and I argue my case about ivermectin. I've got at that point, maybe 75, 85 um, uh, different, uh, different uh, studies that show the efficacy of ivermectin. And they would argue, no, there's still not enough studies. Wait a second. How many studies does it take? And by the way, why isn't the FDA doing the study? If you want to criticize those studies as being small, why isn't the FDA doing it? But we had 85 studies with tens of thousands of people showing the efficacy. So I would argue all of that. And the hospitals would argue, no, their studies are no good. The FDA says no. The WHO says no. The NIH says no. The CDC says no. It's not a good drug for this. You can't use it then I'd say, judge, but in your state, you have a right to try act. And this is the patient's right to try. And then the hospital attorneys would say, oh no, judge, you can't use the right to try act. That's for an experimental drug. And ivermectin is an approved drug. Well, wait a second, you can't have it both ways. So in Virginia, in one case out of the 200 cases I had, that judge ordered that they had to prescribe the ivermectin. And when they didn't, Five days later, that judge found him in contempt and fined them $10,000 a day if they didn't get it done by that night at eight o'clock. Did they hospital, do it? Pardon me? Did, did they administer the drug? Yes. Under that threat? They okay. begged me then because they didn't want to pay the fine. So they contacted me. Here's the other thing hospitals would say. The doctors would say it's against our ethics, our ethics to administer ivermectin, which meant I had to bring in a doctor to that hospital who would prescribe the ivermectin. And so in this particular situation, I had a doctor willing to do it. And so the hospital let that doctor in. But the end result is the hospital then administered it themselves uh -huh. because the judge, one judge had the courage to put him in contempt. So um, ivermectin, I think you said, costs less than a dollar a, a, a pill. 
Um, how much money would the hospital spend um, fighting you in court? You know, they hired the best lawyers and um, was that like $100,000, you think? They would spend tens of thousands of dollars. I, I went against the same lawyer in Illinois a number of times. And they would find, the, the they would hire the best law firms. Uh, you know, hospitals are huge in the community, obviously, typically more than one location. They would have the best attorneys, the best law firms, and they'd have three, four, five lawyers against me. And so we, you know, these things all took place over the matter of only a few days. So they would hit me with all kinds of paperwork. I had a situation um, in one uh, of the cases where I won the initial order to show cause, I win. Now they're entitled to a hearing. And on a Sunday night, they make all kinds of motions, give me all kinds of papers, and I've got to respond on Monday. That's how they would do it. But we did it. We responded. And again, we were successful in a great many of those cases. So it seems like you had more success in right to try states. Is that is that fair to say? Well, at the beginning, it, it would really, I started in January and I had a number of cases. From January through August, September, I was winning 75, 85% of those cases. Starting in September, starting after when the FDA came out with that, you're not a horse, you're not a cow, and they doubled down on these administrators. Now I'm losing 60% of the cases. And even where I would initially win those cases, they would try to appeal before it was done. So we, we've got a lot of pushback. Were there any hospitals that were better, you know, Catholic hospitals or Jewish hospitals, or were there any that, you know, were generally better than, yeah. than most? Here in Buffalo, here in Buffalo, New York, we have the public hospital, the public system in the, and uh, it's called Kaleida, and we have a Catholic hospital system. Neither gave ivermectin as the protocol, but in the Catholic system, when I would bring an action against a Catholic hospital, instead of having a lawyer call me, their loss prevention person would call me and say, look, go get a court order, which relieves us of liability, and we'll consent to the court order. So the Catholic hospitals would administer the ivermectin, and they made me get a consent order, but they didn't give me the aggravation that Kaleida hospitals gave me. Uh -huh. So yes, there were differences. And there were some hospitals um, around the country where uh, ivermectin was used, but they were few and far between. Did you see any um, medical apartheid in terms of uh, hospitals not even wanting to treat people that were not vaccinated once the vaccines came out? You know, I would look at these affidavits from the ICU doctors, and in those affidavits would be whether or not the individual was vaccinated and they would make a big deal when the individual wasn't vaccinated. My argument to the court was it means nothing at this point in time. What it demonstrates is the prejudice that is against these people because now they got COVID. <laughs> you know, you can have COVID whether you're vaccinated or not. Obviously, we've learned that it's not a true vaccine. It does not prevent you from getting the disease. So but it would be in the papers and it would show the prejudice 
that the hospitals had for these individuals who weren't vaccinated. Mm -hmm. did, did you see instances of, uh, of medical kidnappings when um, patients basically were not allowed uh, to get out of the hospitals unless they uh, went on ventilators or went through you know, the prescribed process? I had so many situations. So I had this situation where um, we had a uh, we had a strike at one of the local hospitals, and so a nurse, her mother gets COVID, and so instead of sending her mother to her hospital, she sends her to a public the the public hospital. The strike is over with. The hospital says they will transfer her mother. And then they refuse to do it. So I start the litigation. During the litigation, now this woman hasn't been on a ventilator yet. During the litigation, in the middle of the night, they do two things. One, they put the woman on the ventilator. Two, they have the woman relinquish the daughter, the nurse daughter's power of attorney. They did that so that the lawsuit stops then, because now I don't have standing in court. I don't have somebody who can bring the lawsuit. So they tried to prevent me and stall me two different ways. They put her on a ventilator. When they said they weren't going to, they were going to transfer her. Instead, they put her on a ventilator. Now she's not able to talk, obviously. And second, they claim she changed powers of attorney verbally. Nothing in writing. You can legally do it in New York in those situations by witnesses. And so they said she changed to her husband. Now, I don't doubt what I think happened was they told her, your husband can't come and visit you because he's not your power of attorney. And so if you want your husband to visit you, you're going to have to change. That's probably what they said to her. But no one knows because that lady dies because they never transfer her, they never give her the ivermectin, and they stall me till she does die by changing the power of attorney. I have to bring the lawsuit all over again. Have you seen uh, cases where um, hospitals um, contact Child Protective Services if the parents don't consent to having the child, you know, take rindisivir or go on ventilators or? You know, go through other medical treatments that parents don't think are, are, are necessary? Well, I, I had situations with um, all kinds of people of all kinds of ages. And I had a situation with a disabled individual where the hospital really took control away from the parent. Um, you know, it, it was just the way it worked was if you went to a hospital with COVID, they looked at your oxygen levels and it was almost like they wanted your oxygen level to drop below 90 so that they could put you on the ventilator. And if you listen to Peter McCullough, I mean, a, a great doctor who studied this thoroughly, you, you didn't need to be placed on a ventilator at that point in time, if you were able to, you know, to operate, but yet they did it because they were financially incentivized to do it. And so they put you on a ventilator. Now, again, during the early part of most of this, you, you had nobody there at the hospital with you. You're all by yourself. So the hospitals took terrible 
control over these people. In the third situation I had was in Rochester again. I won the lawsuit. Uh, was on Good Friday uh, in 2021. So I get the call. It's an 81-year-old man who's at the hospital again um, on a ventilator, and they won't administer the ivermectin. I call the judge at home. I have the judge's home phone number, the judge of the day. It's Friday afternoon, Good Friday. And he tells me to get a hold of the lawyer for the hospital, and we'll have a conference call at 5 o'clock. I do that. We argue over the phone. I'm successful, and the hospital has to administer the ivermectin. But this 81-year-old individual had dementia. The wife was very concerned that he didn't have anything familiar around him, so she wanted to visit him, and they wouldn't let her. So I had to get a second court order, which allowed her one hour a day in the afternoon to go play music for her husband so that he had something familiar that he could relate to. They had that much control over you. Did they bar visitors uh, based on their being non-vaccinated? Yes. And they wouldn't let you go home. You know, so if you, I, I had, again, a situation where um, the lady's mother is in the hospital. She was, again, I, I can't remember her age, but she wanted to take her home and administer the ivermectin at home. And now they refuse. She says, well, I'll sign against medical advice. No, they wouldn't let it. They, you know, they say no. So finally, I have to bring a lawsuit to get her out of the hospital. Well, so even signing uh, something that says I want to release this patient, uh, I know it's against medical advice, right. that still would, wouldn't suffice. Right. What, what was the legal basis? You know, what was the legal basis? Well, if it's in the I don't think there is a legal basis because when I got to the lawsuit stage, they did, you know, they did release her finally. But I don't think there is a legal basis. The legal, the argument they would want to make is you're a power of attorney. You have to do what's, or your healthcare proxy, you have to do what's best for the patient. And it's not best for the patient to be removed from the hospital. That was the argument. Were patients pressured to sign uh, do, do not resuscitate orders um, almost at admission? Uh, you know, very, very Again, early. I, I didn't see that part of it. Most of the patients. People I had had um, healthcare proxies. One of the problems and one of the things I learned along the way is everybody needs a thorough power of attorney and a thorough healthcare proxy. Because again, um, almost every single patient I had was on a ventilator when I got the client. And so they couldn't be the plaintiff in the lawsuit. Somebody had to be on their behalf. And in order to have what's called standing in court to bring that lawsuit, you either need the individual, which I couldn't get because they're on a ventilator, or you need somebody with a power of attorney that allows you to sue or a very strong healthcare proxy. And when I didn't have those, I had to bring a separate action for a guardianship proceedings, which only delayed me more. So I have to bring a separate action for a guardianship proceeding, then bring the action for the lawsuit. And we had to do that a number of times. So those are documents that every individual needs. but um, you know, you also need a very strong advocate. You can't simply rely on the hospital. You can't simply rely on the fact that you hope or believe that they will do everything they can for you. 
that isn't what happened during the COVID situation. We're, um, so there is such a thing as patient advocates. Um, I guess you hire these people. Um, were, were, did they have more success? Were they allowed to spend time with the patient and intervene? And or it, it depended on the hospital and the advocate. Um, what we saw were there did turn out to be patient advocates who would get involved with the patient portal, understand what was going on with the patient on a regular basis. And the hospitals, then it depended on what information they put into the patient portal. They didn't always put all the information into the patient portal. So a patient advocate is something that's important. The family member could be an advocate, but too often the family member didn't understand the procedure. And so someone who really was an advocate, who'd been there before, who understood the procedure was much better. And so um, if you had no advocate and you weren't capable of dealing with the hospital, then the hospital took total control of that patient. And the hospitals were, as we all know, overworked, overwhelmed. There were many COVID patients in these hospitals and they were just, treated in a mass way. So for example, the remdesivir people, they gave remdesivir to everybody, whether you wanted it or not. You, it wasn't that you had a choice because they didn't ask you. They put you on a ventilator, then gave you the medication. And remdesivir has a detrimental effect on people with kidney issues. And yet the overriding force was COVID. If you got COVID, you got remdesivir. If you had kidney issues, that was secondary and sometimes never even considered. There are lawsuits today brought in California, in Nevada, and around this country because tens of thousands of people died as a result of improper use of remdesivir. It is, as far as the uh, liability, so the vaccine manufacturers, I understand, you know, they have very good protection from liability, can't sue them. Um, but uh, you've sued hospitals, not, I guess, have you really sued them for damages or just to uh, get orders in place that Invermectin can be administered? So look, I've been practicing law since February of 1974, a long, long time. I'm a commercial litigator, so I know how to litigate, but I'm not a personal injury lawyer. I'm not a medical malpractice lawyer. I brought these lawsuits against the hospital and to a good extent, we were successful. Now I've talked to many malpractice lawyers. And first of all, what's against them is many governors, for example, Governor Cuomo gave hospitals um, uh, immunity in COVID cases. Many governors gave hospitals immunity if it was COVID. Medical malpractice is a very difficult lawsuit, time consuming, very costly. And most malpractice lawyers, the ones I've talked to are, have been unwilling to take on these lawsuits. You need to look at a different aspect. Is there a different legal procedure that you can go after these hospitals? And there are some, um, there are some situations. For example, I went to a, a, a conference, a COVID conference in March. I was asked to speak at a COVID conference in March. There were over 200 lawyers and roughly 30 to 40 doctors at the conference. So I spoke about my uh, journey through this, and there were many lawyers who spoke about 
Remdesivir, who spoke about the vaccine, who spoke about doctors being terminated, who spoke about people in general being terminated for their employment for not wearing masks or getting vaccinated. Um, there's everybody's looking for the lawsuit that they can bring to give some peace to these people who lost so many people. Now, I just ran across um, a court of appeals case in the state of New York, the highest court in the state of New York. And the court of appeals case is a, the facts are crazy. What happens is the hospital contacts the daughter and says, your mother passed, hire the funeral home, have the funeral home come and get your mother and do the funeral arrangements. She does. The funeral parlor goes and gets the individual, sets up the funeral. The woman goes to the funeral parlor. It's not her mother. It's misidentification. She brings a lawsuit against the hospital. Now it's not malpractice. It's negligent infliction of emotional distress. The lawsuit's dismissed in court. It's dismissed at the appellate division. It goes to the Court of Appeals, though, and the Court of Appeals in New York is now holds there is such a thing as negligent infliction of severe emotional distress. And that case was sent back for a hearing. So when I look at that and I see how these people were treated, I think lawsuits can be brought on that basis. Uh-huh. Is that very is that a lot of money? Is there much money in that? Or, you know, it depends on what a jury is going to do. You're going to ask not only for actual damages, but for punitive damages. It's emotional distress. Somebody's got to put a number on that. You know, it's at least a lawsuit that's viable, at least in the state of New York with that court of appeals case. We're looking as lawyers, we're looking to give these people some satisfaction for what they went through. So many people were denied access. So many people were treated, family members were treated rudely, were yelled at, were sent out of the hospital or walked out of the hospital because they asked for or made a request for ivermectin. The hospitals treated these people terribly. I guess some things are hard to prove. You you were saying that sometimes you believe the uh, nurses or what have you were um, misrecording data. Uh, so maybe misrecording oxygen levels. So maybe they put somebody on a ventilator and the oxygen level could have been 93 or 94 and they could have written down it was 86 or something like that. Uh, there's no way I have proof of any of that. What I know is there's lots of missing information. That's what I do know, that there's lots of missing information. Um, so the oxygen level wouldn't be reported at times or, you know, different kinds of uh, activities would not be reported. So you can only infer from there, why? Why is it missing on this particular date or this particular time? Because it's adverse to the hospital, that's why. So um, it doesn't really seem that things have changed. Um, you know, if God forbid there's another pandemic next month, um, it doesn't seem like the powers that be have really changed. There's no, as far as I can tell, there's no big investigation, no congressional investigation, you know, no special prosecutor, 
no international investigation that I know of. Um, and it seems like all the mechanisms are in place for this to repeat. So here's my solution. My solution is at the ballot box. What needs to be done is the right to try statutes need to be in every state. I mean, we need a national right to try. In this country, you have the legal right to say no. If they want to give you aspirin and you don't want aspirin, you have the legal right to say no. But you don't have the legal right to ask for it. That is crazy to me. So in the right to try states, those laws were promulgated. So you do have the legal right under certain conditions. Now, it has to be prescribed by a doctor. You have to give releases to the hospital. It has to be, you know, there's certain things that have to be in order. But again, the right to try statutes, each and every one of them, is for experimental drugs, not off-label. If we added three words, or off-label, three words to the right to try statutes, then that individual in the hospital would have the legal right to demand ivermectin or some other solution that they believed would help them. We don't have that today in this country, in the free country that we live in. We don't have the right to choose our medication. So the ballot box is where it needs to happen. Yeah, it just seems before before COVID, um, one could one could get a prescription to ivermectin off label, sure. right, very easily, sure. um, and would would treat things that maybe weren't that serious. Um, but then we have COVID, you know, reported to be very serious, and you can't try something. You know, you can't you can't get access to ivermectin. So that's uh, very unfortunate. Well, uh, Ralph, uh, thank you so much for spending uh, some time with us. And moreover, thank you for the wonderful work you did. You, you must have saved hundreds of lives with your, your lawsuits. Um, you know, I, saved, I certainly saved dozens of lives. We put out the word to people so that hopefully a lot of people didn't need me uh, to actually litigate. Because um, I talked to people every single day, dozens of people every single day through that and walked a lot of people through what needed to be done, pointed people to the Frontline COVID Alliance and to the protocol that they put up at the Frontline COVID Alliance. I mean, there are heroes in this situation. Pierre Corey, Paul Merrick, Peter McCullough, Robert Malone. These are the heroes in this situation because they risked their careers to help people. And, you know, I applaud them. There's a doctor in Illinois, Alan Bain, this Dr. Alan Bain, when I won a case in Illinois and the court ordered the hospital to give the ivermectin, the hospital refused. I talked to the hospital administrator and they said, no, we're not going to do it. I say, look, it isn't your choice. It is a court order. And they said, no. I went back on contempt. The judge ordered it, but the hospital said, our doctors won't do it. So I had to find a doctor. Dr. Corey introduced me to Dr. Alan Bain. Alan Bain went to that hospital every day for 19 days and gave that woman ivermectin. And that woman survived. And Dr. Bain and I became friends. He helped me in five more different cases. There are heroes. These are people who sacrificed their time, their reputation, and their license. We all need to get behind these people. 
Well, you're you're one of the heroes too. You played a very important role in uh, trying to achieve some justice for mistreatment that lots of patients experience at hospitals. And it's unfortunate that some of the people you mentioned, you look them up on Wikipedia and their cast is uh, anti-vaxxers or purveyors of misinformation. Um, so it's a, it's a very sad, but thank goodness we have people like you in the world uh, that are bringing some justice and relief to people that need it the most. So Ralph Lorigo, thank you very much for speaking to us today. All right, I appreciate it. Thank you, David.